Hello and welcome to A History of Christian Theology, Episode 3, A Theology of Atheism, and Polycarp of Smyrna. John the Evangelist mentored Bishop Polycarp of Smyrna in the faith. The tradition of the apostles passes through him, ultimately, to Irenaeus of Lyon and through to the Orthodox defenders of the faith, which we will encounter later. He is critical in the chain of truth passed through the early centuries and preserved in the church. I'd be remiss not to mention the fact that many collections have Ignatius before Polycarp, and the letter we read from Polycarp to the Philippians accompanied the collection of letters from Ignatius to various church communities. But we will look at Ignatius next week. The link to the letters from Ignatius are on our blog at ahistoryofchristiantheology.com. We have purchased this domain name, and we really want to market this podcast to those who are interested in a critical and reasonable approach to the story of the development of Orthodox Christianity in its various forms, from the Church of the East, to Eastern Orthodox, to Roman Catholic, and to Protestant. But it is done in a conversational fashion, taking into account the various biases that we each bring to the study. Now on to Polycarp. As best modern scholars can tell, Polycarp was martyred around 160 Common Era or Anno Domini in the year of our Lord. If this is the case, it seems reasonable to assume what Eusebius of Caesarea wrote in his Ecclesiastical History, where Eusebius contends that Marcus Aurelius, the great Stoic emperor, ruled during this period. Although he is not mentioned in the letter known as the Martyrdom of Polycarp, we will be looking at both the Epistle to the Philippians and the Martyrdom. The letter is somewhat inconsequential in the development of theology in the early Christian community. It, too, is an occasional letter, much like Clement's to the Corinthians. We continue to deal with material that was written around the period of the New Testament, but was not considered part of the New Testament canon. The occasion of the letter was a problem with the leader Valens and his wife, uh, who appear to have misused church funds. Polycarp is quite critical of Valens' misuse of these funds and speaks harshly against any who bring dissension in the community, much like Clement. However, Polycarp outlined several attempts to bring him back into the fold. He greatly desires reconciliation of this troubled leader. It should be noted that Polycarp makes frequent liberal use of the New Testament in ways in which Clement does not. As the narrative about the development of Scripture unfolds, Polycarp seems to take one more steps toward recognition of the epistles of Paul's, the Gospels, and the other letters that are, we now know as the New Testament as part of the canon. In the martyrdom of Polycarp, the author writes the earliest account of a martyrdom outside of Stephen in the book of Acts by Luke. In this letter, Polycarp is charged with being an atheist, uh, hence the title, A Theology of Atheism. The author wants to critique what appears to be a view of early Christianity that they should seek out martyrdom. The writer wants to indicate that it is part of God's will, but that it should not be actively sought by Corinthian, by Christians, martyrdom, that is. Polycarp refuses to submit and recognize Caesar, Caesar's lordship, but holds steadfast to the gospel, Jesus Christ is Lord. One helpful corrective of much theological scholarship is the dilemma between action and thinking. Polycarp gives us occasion to discuss the life and actions that demonstrate the inherent trust and commitment that underlies the life of the mind of these early Christian thinkers. Speculative and constructive theology is difficult to work out when one's life is at stake. Well, let's, uh, let's get started here. Um, I decided to call this episode a theology of atheism, mostly because uh, I thought it was interesting in the uh, martyrdom of Polycarp, 
that the charge brought against him is he is an atheist. Also, there was an interesting uh, article I read in the New York Times calling for a theology of atheism. Uh, so I figured it could be sort of pertinent uh, both to what we were reading uh, and to an article that was being discussed in, uh, in a popular paper. Um, but be that as it may, uh, let's, let's jump right in. Um, what, what, were some, uh, what were some elements of the letter to the Philippians, an occasional letter of, Paul, of Polycarp to the Philippians, just like Clement is writing to the Corinthians, Polycarp is writing to the Philippians. Um, what, what were some elements that jumped out of, uh, off the page to you all from his letter? We'll start with Tom. I remember Tom talking about how he used the New Testament. Yeah, that's kind of the main thing that I see in this letter that I find interesting. Obviously, one critique that is often leveled, usually by, and I don't want to say this in a, in a derogatory way necessarily, but from people who are not really well-educated uh, in things of church history, uh, one criticism often leveled against Christianity is that it puts its trust in a scripture that was really put together and compiled way after the events that it was recording. People will often, uh, you know, reference the, the basic uh, affirmation of the New Testament at the Council of Carthage, which I believe is 375. Uh, I might be wrong there. But does that, does that sound right, Chad? 375, uh, yeah, Council of Carthage? 397. 397, Council of Carthage. Uh, and so, you know, one criticism people will level is, hey, you know, early Christians didn't even read the Bible or read the New Testament. That's something that comes way later. But what you see here in Polycarp's writing, I mean, who, and Polycarp is one of the earliest Christian theologians we have. Uh, I mean, he would have, and I'm sure you probably have already mentioned, you mentioned this in your intro chat, but he, he undoubtedly personally knew John the Apostle. I mean, that's at least what tradition tells us in spades. Uh, he already had this sense that the New Testament writings were in some sense authoritative. Uh, I mean, obviously, not just in some sense authoritative, he took them as authoritative in a way that, that the Old Testament was authoritative to Clement. Uh, he quotes it verbatim, and what's more is he's really well-schooled in it. He makes uh, frequent references uh, and quotes it frequently uh, and in fact, I do believe, refers to it as scripture in one particular spot. In fact, I'll, I'll turn here, right? Uh, it's in chapter 12 in his exhortation to various graces. Um, he actually says, it is declared then in these scriptures, quote, be ye angry and sin not, end quote, and quote, let not the sun go down upon your wrath. Now, that is clearly a quote from Ephesians 4, verse 26. The first half could have been drawn from the Psalms, uh, but the second half was clearly from Ephesians 4. So he actually refers to it as scripture. Um, and so I, I just think it's really important that people understand that the, the actual process by which the church came to canonize the New Testament is way more complex than just saying, look, 397 the, the bishops get together and confirm that this is the New Testament. I just found that fascinating. Yeah, the one I'm looking at right now, in fact, uh, contains the New Testament verse being used, highlighted in yellow, after every single one. And I mean, most of these chapters I'm looking at, there's you know a minimum of two 
and up to like six quotes in the New Testament. Every single chapter. I mean, like no matter what, it's it's a lot of New Testament quotations. So. Right. So so we see that yeah he's just making liberal use of of the New Testament. Um, so one thing that's interesting to me in this conversation, Tom, uh, one part that you wanted to bring up was the difference between an evangelical look at these early authors and maybe a more Catholic approach uh, where you can appeal to tradition. So if you're a Roman Catholic, you want to say, look, we know that these are scriptures because the tradition tells us they're scriptures. Um, And you need the tradition in order to get the scriptures. But I, I wonder if there's not a way in which an evangelical reading this takes it differently um, and doesn't, doesn't lean on the fact that it's tradition, but maybe has a different emphasis. Well, it would seem to me that the evangelical would still lean on the fact that it's tradition. The evangelical would say, yeah, we do know that this was the New Testament used by tradition, but they wouldn't think of tradition as being authoritative in the same way that a Roman Catholic does. And, and okay. one might say, well, wait a minute, why should we trust the evangelicals' uh, use of tradition then. And, and here's, here's why. The evangelical is quite simply saying, look, I want to know, and, and actually our listeners must understand that this really is what has motivated Protestantism since Luther, uh, and, and not just Protestantism, but even various splinter movements that broke out prior to Luther. There is this constant desire to get back to what the apostles believed, to get back to what the early church believed in practice. And there was this fundamental assumption that the guys who knew the apostles or the guys who were closer to the apostles would have been more privy to the apostles' understanding of truth. And so we, you know, so evangelicals look back to uh, what these, these first-generation theologians taught, and they don't, they don't feel the need to think that these first theologians are, are inerrant or even authoritative in the sense Scripture is. They just look at it as a component in an argument. That argument is this. Uh, well, actually, I shouldn't, yeah, maybe not arguments. Maybe arguments not quite the right word, but they look at it as a component in like a, like a uh, just a gathering of information, which is meant to establish what the early church believed. Why? because we want to get as close as possible to what the apostles believed and taught. I think that's really what fuels the evangelical mindset on this. So you can quote uh, one of these early theologians, and the evangelical doesn't feel the need to submit to that as an authority, but he does use it as, as a bit of information that sheds light on what the early church practiced, and he considers it very seriously. That evangelical will not feel as compelled uh, by a reference to, say, a 12th century uh, Christian writer. He will feel far less compelled because that guy will have been significantly distanced from the apostles, if that makes sense. And Trevor, you were having some questions about the use of authority, the use of scripture um, when we were reading Clement. Uh, did any of these same uh, concerns arise for you in this uh, letter from, uh, from Polycarp to the Philippians? Well, I think definitely... Um, seeing how much New Testament quotations here and seeing uh, kind of what Tom is talking about, the fact that it was considered scripture by these guys at this time, it's, it's actually kind of blown my mind because it seems as if there's, there's a, I guess, reverence held for those who 
saw the risen Christ as it were, and that um, reference kind of I, I didn't I didn't actually know to be perfectly honest. I've actually never read the Polycarp's Philippians until now. I never knew that this reference was held like this early that they were considering uh, its scripture and quoting it like scripture. Um, and so to me, it's kind of, I don't know, it's kind of, I think, uh, affirming actually to me a lot of, a lot of things that even Tom was just saying. I mean, it's uh, maybe, I don't know if it has to do with having seen Christ. I'm not sure if that's the criteria, but there is a, there's a reverence also to these scriptures where these guys even realize that what they're writing isn't. I think they know that what they're writing isn't the same as Thessalonians or, you know, Peter or John. So, um, I don't know. I don't know what there is to be said about that. But, I mean, I even see a quote here from Jude. I mean, I don't know. There's some, there's just some pretty, uh, I guess I should say, uh, yeah, obscure stuff in here, even. So, I don't know. I don't know what. I don't. I don't know what it means for authority, but it's it's making me think that uh, there's maybe more of a clear distinction than I was kind of instigating last time. I would like to add that something about Polycarp's writing here that really um, strikes me isn't just that he's using all of these quotes authoritatively. He's writing scripture. I like Well, let me put it this way. He's penning a letter to these people, and as he writes, the scriptures, the, that is, these New Testament quotes just flow into the narrative as he's writing, as if he has them memorized. And what that tells me is that Polycarp, and I would presume his students as well, actually treated these New Testament scriptures as something to be learned and memorized in the same way that Jewish students learned and memorized scriptures. Uh, uh, Old Testament scriptures, I should say. Um, it seems to me that they, which is a very astounding thing, because it's not as if uh, the Greeks had that as a part of their culture to learn the Old Testament, right? I mean, these are Polycarp and the guys he's writing to have come out of Greek culture, uh, but they're adopting this Jewish practice of, of really holding up the scriptures and memorizing them and letting them be just a part of their argumentation. I, I, I find that a very compelling point. For sure. Yeah, so one thing that, that's always sort of a question when we talk about canonization and these sort of issues is like the self-awareness question. You know, is Paul self-aware that he's writing Scripture? Is Polycarp, does he think that he's writing Scripture? And I guess what we're coming to see is that Polycarp you know, he's inundated with the scripture, but he's already referring to them in a separate category from his own writing. So he's making an appeal to the Philippians in the same pattern that Paul does, uh, but his authority is already Paul. Um, and so his self-awareness seems to be that there's a distinction between what he is getting up to and what Paul is getting up to. You know, there's even, I mean, there are moments in the New Testament, in 1 Corinthians especially, where Paul says, I say this and not the Lord which seems to show some nuance or some understanding of that, that he really is sent by God to say these things. Um, but you don't see Polycarp or Clement make this same kind of 
um, back and forth between I say it, not the Lord, or that kind of thing, where, where it seems to indicate that Paul has a unique view of his purpose, has a very special purpose um, set, to be sent by God to say these things. We're in this curious middle ground, right? So um, the actual quote is about whether or not a wife should separate from her husband, um, who's not a Christian, or, or no, uh, no, I'm sorry, who burns with passion, um, for it is better to marry than with burn, to burn with passion. But nevertheless, we're in this middle ground where Paul knows that he is an apostle, he is one sent out, he is one who has this unique encounter with the risen Christ. He has been called by God to preach to the Gentiles. But he doesn't believe, and this is a sort of a, juxtaposition that I often like to make, he doesn't, he doesn't seem to think that, uh, you know, that the archangel Gabriel is whispering into his ear what he should say. Um, so he recognizes that, that something is unique about his position, but it's not the same like, awareness that maybe Muhammad had uh, when he pe- uh, pens the Quran, when he literally just writes what is being dictated to him. Or maybe in a similar way even uh, for, for the Latter-day Saint community, for, for the LDS community, when Joseph Smith is looking at plates that he is translating um, as scripture, you know, there's a different kind of awareness of what's going on, and Paul is somewhere in between the two. Uh, and this also leads to concerns about why Christians believe that we can translate scripture into other languages because we don't believe that it literally comes from the mouth of God in one language, that, and it must be preserved in that language for all time in order for it to be scripture. Yeah, well, one thing I would say to that is, of course, the, the, the Muslim view of inspiration and the, or as well as the Mormon view of inspiration is not, as far as I can tell, it does not in any way resemble either the Christian or the Jewish view, right? So there just isn't a Christian or, or Jewish narrative where Gabriel the archangel comes down and dictates while the person writing writes. That just doesn't happen anywhere across the older New Testaments. Um, so that seems to be just a completely different view of what inspiration is. So I don't think it would be really proper to say that Paul isn't aware that that's what's happening because, I mean, of course, he, he, he is aware that that's, not what, that that's not what's happening, so that is proper to say. But um, at the same time, I don't think it would be proper to say that Paul, therefore, isn't aware that he's writing Scripture um, because I don't think Paul would think of Scripture as something where the angel Gabriel comes down and dictates because that isn't how the Old Testament was inspired. Um, so it's not the pattern that was set for him. Uh, as far as I can tell, the first time that that, that pattern is instituted is uh, in the, the Muslim tradition. Um, I do want to reference, though, uh, the passage because we've, <laughs> I had to look it up. I didn't have my, my Bible handy. But it's 1 Corinthians chapter 7, and it's verse 10. Paul says, Now to the married I command, yet not I but the Lord. A wife is not to depart from her husband. So there he's referencing the teachings of Jesus which come through in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, that husbands and wives are not to divorce. Uh, And then in verse 12 he says, But to the rest, I, not the Lord, say, If any brother has a wife who does not believe, and she is willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. So what it's saying there is, is if a man is is a Christian and married to a non-Christian, 
uh, and she's willing to stay with him, then he should stay with her. And then he goes on, and what he says there is, Jesus didn't say anything about that. I'm the one talking. Uh, so that's the context of what we were uh, of what we were talking about there. Yeah, very good, very good. Um, if if I might, um, is there anything else that you all would like to discuss about the epistle? Uh, if I was thinking we could turn to the martyrdom, any further points about the epistle? Uh, the only thing I was going to say, and again, it's a minor point that's not expounded, is just that once again, uh, as I mentioned when we were looking at Clement, there is yet again a reference to belief as the criterion of salvation, and it's tied to uh, resurrection or to afterlife. Because it says here in chapter 5 that he will raise us again from the dead and that if we live worthily of him, we shall also reign together with him, and quote, provided only that we believe. So again, he sets belief as this criterion for resurrection um, uh, and for reigning with him, which is a reference to a passage in Revelation. Uh, It doesn't expound it. I don't want to make more of a claim than than I need to. I, I mean, obviously, he's just using New Testament language yet again, but I do think it's interesting that he, he adds that phrase, provided only that we believe, seeming to make, again, belief at least the necessary, or a necessary condition uh, for this resurrection, uh, if not a sufficient condition. Yeah, I had a weird, I just thought this was weird language, and I don't know, maybe we'll cut this part from the podcast, because <laughs> maybe it's not anything at all, but I thought it was very strange uh, in chapter 7, um, where he calls those who, what is it, who say there is neither a resurrection nor a judgment, says that they're the firstborn of Satan. And I guess maybe I'm not really pointing out anything really particular or cool, but maybe I'm just actually just asking a question for the people more knowledgeable than me. I mean, is that normal? And what what is what's being translated there? Why is it the... I'm actually glad you brought that up because that is something that comes out in Polycarp's letter, which I think is a bit of evidence that he really was influenced by John the Apostle. The language that he uses uh, in that little section is when he's referring to what he calls the docetai, and here would be a little bit of help, I mean, I think if we're talking history of theology, uh, we do have to point out that it seems that, that uh, Polycarp is beginning to engage uh, docetists, which were an early Gnostic sect. And um, to kind of just lay out the groundwork quite essentially for what Gnostics believe, uh, let me say just a couple things. First of all, Gnosticism is not a unified religion. Um, there are countless different sects or religious groups in the first and second century, well, actually more of the second century, they could have been called Gnostics. Um, and many of them have, or, and they all have wildly different beliefs, very varied in their beliefs. But the core unifying thing that all Gnostics have in common is this, a hatred of matter or the flesh and a love of the spirit. And this is because of their influence by Plato 
uh, who who held to strong convictions about the 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 wicked not wickedness that's the wrong term but just that matter was bad flesh was bad spirit was good and so early Gnostic sects actually all Gnostic sects essentially taught uh, very vehemently against the resurrection of the dead and many scholars think that the letter First John is being directed against uh, early Gnostic sects or nascent Gnostic sects because in it John says things like if anyone says that Christ uh, did not come in the flesh, then he is accursed. Uh, you know, there's this emphasis on the flesh. Like, if people mm, say yeah. that flesh, meaning matter, is bad, then they're bad. Well, Polycarp here is just piggybacking off of what John says in the first letter and says, if anybody says there's no resurrection of the dead, then he's the firstborn of Satan. He, it's just this, that, that phrase, firstborn of Satan, is not meant to be literal. It's, it's, just an, it's just an offensive remark. He's just saying, this dude is bad. Uh, be, and, and he's essentially condemning Gnosticism there. Is it, a, is it supposed to be like a parallel, though, image to basically just say that they are being antichrist? Like, not that they are Satan himself, but essentially they are an antichrist. Because um, he does, because you're correct, the first line of chapter 7 quotes First uh, John 4.3. Um, and it, yeah, it's directly who does not confess, for whoever does not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is Antichrist, but then I just thought it was weird that then he said he's the first corner well, of Satan. And if we want to go quite literally here, right, anti-Christos is against Christ. Um, and, you know, so if we look at the, the words that we get from Polycarp, He's using the term anti-Christos, one who is against Christ. Um, and then we have diabolu, um, and, and then, or diabolos. Diabolu is the genitive and the use here. Um, and then we have uh, satana. And satana is, uh, you know, more of a, uh, it was the word actually, hashatan is the word that Job uses for Satan in the Old Testament. So we have three words that may or may not refer to the same entity. I mean, I think they're meant to, uh, but we can see, you know, different ways to refer to this one who is against Christ. So if you're the firstborn of Satan, and if, I mean, if you really want to go back to uh, the, the being born from above that John uses in his gospel, um, you know, uh, John wants to say that spiritually we can be born again and be born of God and be children of God. Um, and, and you get, you know, John is drawing, uh, well, Polycarp and, and John before him is drawing a line in the sand. There are those of you who are born of God and recognize Jesus' resurrection. Uh, and then there are those of you who deny his resurrection. And you are born of Satan. Um, so, you know, you are contrary to the truth of the matter, which is to say that, Jesus resurrected in the flesh. Right. Well, and not only Jesus resurrected in the flesh, but Jesus coming in the flesh. I mean, um, the Gnostics denied that Christ ever even came in the flesh. That's what the Docetists believed. The Docetists, the term means, it comes from a Greek word, dokeo, which means to seem and uh, to appear. And so what the Docetists believed was that Jesus just had the appearance of matter or the appearance of flesh, but didn't actually die, or sorry, didn't actually take on human matter. Um, and 
when Jesus died on the cross, according to the Docetists, the belief was that he actually switched spots um, with Simon of Cyrene. When Simon of Cyrene took the cross uh, from him, uh, there was a mistake that was made by the Roman officials, and they crucified Simon thinking it was Jesus, because Jesus, being not really matter or material, couldn't have actually died. And so that was the common belief of, or that was the shared belief of the Gnostics. Jesus never even came in the flesh, let alone dying or resurrecting. And they mocked the, the, the Christian teaching of the resurrection. And that, it seems to me, is what John is directing his statement in First John about the Antichrist, or about Antichrist. Um, John makes the comment, you have heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists are in the world. Um, and who is Antichrist? He's the one that denies that Jesus is the Christ come in the flesh. That is, it seems to me, uh, a statement saying that these early uh, Gnostic teachers are against Christ and, in fact, are, in a sense, little antichrists, um, uh, you know, who have come into the world. So that, that seems to be the force of what he's saying, and it seems to be where Polycarp is. Polycarp's just piggybacking off of that. Yeah, very good. And, and I would just like to add, you know, the, there's part of me, uh, maybe with my sort of more modern contemporary sensibilities, you know, I don't like the drawing the line in the sand. I want to include everybody, um, you know, right? So this inclusion and tolerance, these are sort of values that people uh, bring about these days. And in Polycarp's letter, he is drawing a line in the sand, but it's a very, it is the foundational issue, right? I mean, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians, um, that if, if Christ has not died um, you know, you, and, not, and resurrected, you are still in your sin. Um, and there are some wonderful things that Polycarp does later in this uh, letter to show that, that he wants to bring um, everybody um, bring everybody together. He does have this unifying vision, this inclusivist vision in a way. In, in chapter 11, he says, rather than judge uh, people... Uh, as enemies, call them back as frail and wayward members so as to heal your entire body. For when you do this, you build yourselves up. And this is the very end of chapter 11. So even though Polycarp does have to draw some hard lines here, and he does have to say, look, you know, what it means to be a Christian is to mean that Jesus resurrected. Um, but outside of that, uh, we, ultimately I'm telling you all of this because I want to see you guys united. Um, I want to see people brought in. And even those who might be sort of enemies, he uses the term enemies. No, you should love them and seek to heal them and bring them back so they're part of this community that recognizes that, the re that Jesus the Christ came in flesh, resurrected in flesh, and will come again in flesh. Right. That, was, um, that was my little sermon there, if you like that. <laughs> <laughs> Good one. So we yeah, should probably talk about we should probably talk about the martyrdom if if you want to hit on that real quick. Yeah, well, and as Tom Tom is you know right to concern, we don't really know who wrote uh, the martyrdom, and it is a um, sort of a later. Um, it's, well, you know, it still seems to be fairly early, and Eusebius mentions it, um, and there are some references to it. Um, it's called the earliest. Uh, martyrdom story outside of the book of Acts. Um, but, you know, one thing here uh, that, that I just brought up 
you know, is um, the charge that, that, that's brought against Polycarp is he will not recognize uh, Caesar as Lord. Um, and to me, that this is a big deal. Um, you know, I'm, uh, this will be the first reference and certainly not the last uh, to one of my favorite contemporary theologians, uh, N.T. Wright. Um, and, you know, he is quick to point out, we've been ta- occasionally we've mentioned the word gospel, um, we've mentioned, mentioned Christ and Lord. And so, so gospel in Greek, you know, meaning the good news, and N.T. Wright is quick to point out that it seems from the New Testament and from, from Paul that the gospel really refers to the fact that Jesus Christ is now Lord um, of the world in the place of Caesar. Uh, so Caesar Augustus having claimed to have been a kyrios in Greek, a lord. Um, and uh, and what, what is presented as the reason for Polycarp's uh, ultimate burning at the stake uh, being burned is that, he, um, is that he will not confess that Caesar is lord uh, and so is an anti- uh, is an atheist, excuse me, um, and is against the, the gods in the Roman pantheon. Yeah, really quickly, a couple of things I, I'd throw in there. Um, one, you make mention of the term martyrdom. I don't know, do, if, did you define in the intro uh, what martyrdom was? Uh, no, that's a good point. Case? No, I, ha- I okay. have not. We have not yet. Okay, so a martyr story is just a story of somebody who uh, basically faces an imminent death at the hands of some persecutor uh, and is asked to renounce his belief uh, in the gospel. I mean, of course, a martyr story is not confined only to Christian theology, so you could have martyr stories of other, uh, you know, of other kinds of scenarios, but it's basically the person upon pain of death is being asked to renounce something or is being asked, to go back upon some belief or conviction that he has. Uh, in, in Christian circles, the martyr stories center around these people who are facing persecution uh, and are being asked to renounce their belief in the gospel, their belief in Jesus Christ, or to do some overt act that would show them uh, the traitors to the gospel of Christ in some sense, like sacrificing to the emperor uh, or something along those lines. Um, And yeah, the early, I would also add that it was a common um, criticism of the early church that they were atheists, which is, of course, ironic because they are not atheists. They definitely believe in a god very distinctly. Um, But there was this general way of thinking uh, that the ancients had, that if you didn't believe in our gods or the proper gods, then you were an atheist. Um, Socrates faces the exact same charge in his uh, apology. He is under, uh, he, or he's standing trial in Athens, and he is accused of being an atheist, even though he patently believes that there is a god. He just doesn't believe in the, quote, right gods, end quote. And that's, uh, so... So atheist just ends up becoming a phrase that people would use in antiquity against people uh, who didn't believe in the right gods, it would seem. Um, the, last, the last thing that I pointed out a little bit in the introduction, the unique thing about Polycarp to me, having put him side by side with his martyrdom story, is 
you know, we're doing theology here. We've been talking about it as occasional, you know, not, not something laid out in a treatise. So for Polycarp, the things that he says, you know, are just the big points, the main points that must be agreed upon because all of these guys are facing death and, got, and girls. All of these you know, brothers and sisters are faith, facing death, persecution, um, and uh, social ostracization. So the fact that he's willing to die for his faith, um, you know, shows it, it's more than just sometimes, you know, theologians, and we'll get to these in the medieval period, it's, it's like, you know, it's done in these uh, hermitages or in the ivory tower. Um, and, but here's a guy who we're studying as an early theologian who's also committed his life to what he is teaching to the point of his own death. Um, and so I feel like it's a good place uh, to pause for a moment, although only three episodes in, to talk about the great faith um, and trust that these people have in whom they're talking about. So in Jesus Christ as Lord, to the point that they would give up their own life. So it's not just, to me, idle specu- speculation. Uh, this is a full life commitment. Uh, and, and also some some intellectual understanding of who this God was that they were committing their life to, um, but it mattered so much uh, that they would be willing, uh, that, that Polycarp would be willing to be burned alive. Um, so I, as far as I can tell, I mean, we're at about 40 minutes with that. I might be able to cut it down closer to 30, but uh, any yeah. final comments? Uh, well, one thing I would, uh, I would just kind of say briefly is, I feel like, I mean, obviously we're having a discussion, so to speak, around these various writers, and it seems that maybe occasionally the history itself, uh, I mean, we try to contextualize things, but there's a lot of history that goes by the wayside, and I, I don't know how we could possibly cover it all, but um, it is important, I think, for our readers to understand, while we discuss these early theologians, that the first 300 years of church history is a story of Christians who are being persecuted, Um, Christians who are being rounded up, who are being arrested and beaten, who are being asked to denounce their faith in God, who are being asked to sacrifice to the genius of the emperor, who are being asked to demonstrate themselves loyal to the state, uh, and who, if they don't concede and if they don't give in, are being burned alive, they're being thrown to lions, uh, they're being impaled, they are being flayed alive. They're having the most horrendous kinds of, uh, of punishments enacted upon them. And all of them do so with this very strong belief that they are embracing a, a fuller life, not rejecting the one that they have, that, that, that there is something coming that when they die, uh, that isn't the end of their story, but they will resurrect. And, and as you said, Chad, a few moments ago, it conveys this strong, strong sense that this isn't just a club that they belong to. It's not just, uh, you know, something that they do on Sundays, but it is kind of, it is the sum total of their lives. Polycarp says uh, when he is, when he's standing before the magistrate, the magistrate asks him to deny Christ, and Polycarp says, 70 and three years I have served him, and he has never denied me. Why should I deny him now? And so there was this strong sense that all of his life he had followed Jesus, and there was this true sense that Christ was, in fact, there upholding him, present in his life, 
and now and at no at no point betrayed him or uh, denied him, and it would be a, a true betrayal for him to die, deny Christ now. And, and so and all I think the while, oh yeah, and I and all the while through all that persecution is defending defending against heresy at the same time. I mean, like if if docetism is being you know talked about this early on, it's it's really impressive that they're that they're going through that and they're having to deal with the fact that people are trying to just bring in this or that and uh, you know this or that heresy and it's it's kind of crazy because it's before councils it's before people you know were just jockeying philosophical opinions for perhaps even political reasons I mean this is like he's like no I mean I met John and John met Jesus and this guy came down in the flesh you know he's He's defending an orthodox view, not out of not out of basically any selfish reason or just philosophical bent. Like you know, I'd like it if my God were like this. I mean, this is just this is just the way it is. I mean, I met these people, and uh, he's you know he's holding on to it, you know, with with a lot of faith and a lot of conviction in the midst of all this persecution, which is why the I, I've actually always found these fathers that much more interesting because. They had to deal with just so much all at the same time. Um, it's not like when it became legal and, you know, to be a Christian at the Edict of Milan and they were like, you know, paying you to, paying your, you know, airfare and travel to the conference, basically. Like, when the <laughs> emperor was, when the emperor was putting the bill and you got to kind of relax and argue and, I don't know. I mean, it, it's, I guess I just have this different view of these guys sometimes how they're they're really um they're really defending what they know and it's, and I think it also just shows the the tight connection they had to the apostles who, who met Jesus. And so they don't they don't have some philosophical bent. They're saying this cuz that's exactly what was told to them, you know. So that's the end of our episode on the martyrdom of Polycarp. Uh please Check back with our website, ahistoryofchristiantheology.com. This week we will be doing another episode on Ignatius of Antioch. Following that, we will turn to several other New Testament apocryphal books, Shepherd of Hermas, the Didache, and a few others. Um, 